0: Well, good morning, everyone. What does it mean to trust the Lord? How do we go about doing that? What spiritual practices will help you draw nearer to God this year? How might your personal devotional life or lack thereof be impacting those around you? What lessons can we learn from God's instructions to kings and priests in the promised land as we are going to read in Deuteronomy 17 and 18 this morning what lessons can we learn from God's instructions and how might those apply to our lives today and finally just how long does it take to handwrite an entire copy of the bible well we're going to answer as many of those questions as we can today and some of you may have already read this, uh, this week, this section of Deuteronomy 17 and 18, and come ready, bracing yourself for a further discussion about the leadership structures of Israel. And we're going to look at what Moses says about kings and priests. But at the same time, I want to push this all just a little bit deeper than that, because I believe a key theme holding these verses together is an emphasis on trusting God in every area of our life. Right here in Deuteronomy, and in the instructions to kings and priests, an emphasis, a strong emphasis on trusting God in every area of our lives. So yes, there are all kinds of applications for people serving in leadership positions, both in the church and in the world, but the common thread that runs through it all is the fundamental importance of trusting the Lord. And what I love about this particular section of Deuteronomy is that Moses gives us some really clear and actionable steps that will, uh, for us to follow that will help us to grow in our trust of the Lord. So uh, let's dig in. We're going to answer most of these questions that I talked about a moment ago. And by the end of this sermon, hopefully you will have some solid goals for, for helping you to grow in your faith and in your trust of the Lord over this coming year. So as I said, the, uh, the first and, and really central theme here is trusting God. And the first way that you can display that trust is by resisting the temptation to control everything around you. Resisting the temptation to control everything around you. Let me uh, read to you from Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. If you don't have it, it's on the screen here for you. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. Now, kings have been a human institution for Almost as long as people have existed, right? The official title may change from country to country, but essentially the role is always the same. Someone who rules over a nation and exercises authority over its people. So kings were nothing particularly new uh, for the people of Israel. They were surrounded by them, right? So you had the Egyptians, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amorites. They're all ruled by kings. Canaan had once been filled with kings and rulers. Even God had promised Abraham uh, that from him, kings would one day come. The point is, everyone knew uh, countries had kings, and so it seems... Almost inevitable that at some point the people of Israel would want or expect to have a king of their own as well. And somewhat surprisingly, God says, actually, if that day comes, it's okay. It's okay. It's not required. It's not necessary. It's not needed. But it's not forbidden either. It does, however, come with some pretty significant caveats. So first, you couldn't choose just any old person that you wanted to be king. More specifically, the choice of king was ultimately God's to make, not the people's at all. So if you look at verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Moses is very clear. This is a decision that ultimately rests with God. For God-fearing Christians like ourselves, this may seem obvious, right? Well, of course, it would be someone that God chooses. But in a world where kings so often forced their way into power on the basis of sort of political wranglings or, or on the basis of their physical strength or military power, this was a significant departure from the norm. But there's a second requirement here as well, namely that the king also had to be an Israelite. So look again at verse 15. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now why impose such a requirement? Well, think back on the previous 16 chapters of Deuteronomy, the the months and months and months we've been going through this material, right? How much of this has been focused around the importance of knowing God, loving God, serving God, obeying God, worshiping God, remaining faithful to God, and God alone? I mean, it's just like every single week we've been talking about this. This is a chosen people Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, God's treasured possession, a people holy unto the Lord. They are to have no other gods, to set up no foreign idols, commit uh, and not get engaged in any foreign acts of worship. Faithfulness to Yahweh and Yahweh alone wasn't just one isolated part of their national identity. It was the central core defining component of who they were uh, as Israelites. And all of that could potentially be undermined if they chose a foreigner, someone from outside the covenant, outside the chosen people of God, to serve as their king. Because ultimately this role had nothing to do with competency, but everything to do with commitment. Meaning a foreigner might be highly qualified for the job, but the king was meant to be different, uniquely gifted, and chosen by God to lead his people in the worship of God, teaching and training and helping them to remain faithful to the covenant. And only a fellow Israelite, someone fully committed to the covenant, could fulfill that role consistently. So those are the first two basic requirements for a king, right? First of all, Uh, chosen by God, secondly, an Israelite. But Moses goes on to give three very stern warnings meant to govern the king's behavior. This is where it gets very interesting. First, the king must not acquire for himself many horses. Now this has nothing to do with whether or not a king could have horses. God loves horses. I love horses. We're not here. There's no problem with horses. They're greats. Horses are not the problem, people are the problem, right? And specifically, what people were going to do with them. This command against acquiring too many horses was meant to limit a king's ability to pursue aggressive military power. It's like a shortcut for saying, don't sort of store up for yourself or or aggressively pursue the accumulation of chariots and, and cavalry. Because chariots required horses to pull them, and large numbers of chariots equated to an enormous military advantage over your enemies. But in contrast, God's appointed king was to resist the temptation to sort of flex in front of the nations around them, and to trust in God to fight their wars on their behalf. Now, secondly, the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. Again, for thousands of years, marriage used as a tool to establish peace, to to build treaties with other nations. But although that was common practice among the kings of other nations around them, Moses warns any future Israelite king to avoid such a temptation. Why? Well, the text is clear, lest his heart turn away. Moses says in verse 17, foreign wives would mean foreign religions, which would mean strange idols and all other kinds of temptations to water down or dilute or corrupt true and pure worship of God and God alone. Remember, the king, he's chosen by God, and meant to lead his people in maintaining faithfulness to God. And so many wives would surely lead him away from that task as we see so dramatically in the life of King Solomon many years later. Well, finally, the king should not, Moses says, acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Once again, the norm among earthly kings right, was vast, ostentatious wealth. Right? It was a privilege that came with being number one, of having the throne. People still go to museums. You can go downtown to Chicago to the museums and, and look at all the, the ancient collections of what? Treasure. Crowns and jewels and necklaces. Not a, they have a few pieces from ordinary people. But, but we go there to see what did the kings and queens have? All these incredible collections of treasure. But Moses turns this expectation upside down. He says a true king of Israel was to reject the pursuit of wealth. Why? Well, first, because such wealth would almost certainly come. Where's all that money going to come from? Well, either from looting other nations around you or, more likely, from taxing your own people. Both of which were uh, 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 forbidden by God. But secondly, excessive wealth corrupts the heart and turns people away from God. Not only do we see this in the failure of King Solomon, but the Bible as a whole repeatedly warns against the corrupting influence of money. Not just for kings and queens, but for everyone. So after reviewing all these sort of warnings, I imagine like a a panel of prospective kings lined up, waiting, vying for the throne. And they hear all of these warnings. And it's sort of like, well, okay, if I can't have military power and I can't have a vast harem of wives and and I can't even pursue a whole lot of wealth, then like what's the point? (laughs) Like why even be king? And I think that's Moses' way of saying, that's exactly the point. That's how radically different an Israelite king was supposed to be. The king was not to build a vast army, but to instead trust God to fight his battles. The king was not to establish treaties with foreign nations, but instead to trust God to establish his people and to fulfill his covenantal promises to Abraham. Finally, the king was not to amass a vast wealth, but instead to trust God to provide. Having been chosen by God and established by God, the king's trust was to be in God and God alone. Jump forward to today. I don't think any of us are destined to be kings or queens, ladies. Sorry, (laughs) Bad news. You can be anything you want, but probably not a king. Um, but the same underlying temptations plague us anyway. Right? The temptation to fight our own battles according to our own limited perspectives and resources. Or the temptation to manipulate and micromanage situations to suit our own needs in an effort to control all possible outcomes. Or the temptation to see money and possessions as the solution to all our problems, whether that's proving ourselves to others by our financial success or filling the emptiness we sometimes feel inside by buying more stuff. So how do we trust God? What does that look like? Well, it starts by resisting the temptation to control everything for ourselves, whether we're trying to do that by, by force, through manipulating others, or accumulating wealth. right? God wants us to stop walking in those ways and to instead display our trust in Him and Him alone. So this year, maybe that means examining your heart to see what drives you. What's driving me to want to accumulate more money and stuff, and then committing to give more generously this year instead? Uh, or, or maybe trusting God more this year looks, looks like learning to back off in certain situations at work or, or at home, rather than you know, constantly working the angles to our own advantage, Well, finally, perhaps God is calling you to seek peace and reconciliation this year rather than holding on to anger, looking for ways to get even with those who have hurt you, choosing to forgive rather than holding on to resentment and bitterness. Like I said, you may not have been called to be a king, But maybe these instructions in Deuteronomy 17 will help shape your spiritual goals this year nonetheless. Well, continuing this theme of trusting God, a second major way that you can display this trust this year is by reading and applying His Word. You know, in doing uh, research for this sermon... I stumbled across a small community of people online who have copied or are in the process of copying out the entire Bible by hand as a sort of spiritual practice of meditation and focus. Some people do it on really fancy notebooks, other people just have like a a three-ring binder with with loose-leaf paper in it. Uh, They're not monks, they're not professional scribes, they're just ordinary people like you or me, some doing it for their grandchildren or children. I found one guy who's already copied the entire Bible out by hand twice and is working on a third copy now. He's doing one for each child. I was like, I've got four kids. This is just, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's no way this is happening. Um, maybe you already knew this, but there are 807,000 la- words in the Bible. I mean, depending on your translation, maybe a few more, a few less. Eight hundred, almost uh, around eight hundred thousand words in the Bible, and on average, that process of writing it out by hand. You want to take a guess how many years we're talking here? Anyone? Just all right. I'll put you out of your misery. Three, three a minimum of three to five years, working every day at it depending on how much spare time you have. One girl, it took nine years. Somebody else, 11 years. It's the kind of project I would be very eager and excited to start and then probably run out of steam after a few weeks. But um, if you do want a really bold and ostentatious goal for this year, there you go, 807,000 words uh, for each of your children. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in our next section of the text you see on the screen, one of the uh, requirements, one of the commands that Moses gives for the king is that he's to write out his own copy of the law. If you look at verse 18. Now, what does that mean? Clearly, he's not talking about the entire Bible. It didn't exist back then, right? So he's not saying write out the whole Bible, and this phrase, the law, is a fairly fluid. It's used. It could, maybe it's just the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe it's a whole, uh, the whole Pentateuch, the first five books uh, of, of our Old Testament. Personally, I think he, most likely he's talking about the book of Deuteronomy here, which is 34 chapters. You write out one chapter a day. You'd be done in about a month, a little over a month. That seems doable, achievable, to me. But why would the king be required to do this? Well, look, first Moses actually gives three commands giving, uh, concerning this writing project. First, the king should write out his own copy. That's verse 18. The copy is then meant to be with him, kept with him. That's verse 19. And then, perhaps most importantly, he's supposed to read it, not just occasionally, but all the days of his life. How many of us have copies of the Bible at home? Maybe we didn't write them out by hand, but we have copies. And, And then on top of that, we actually keep them with us, right? You can have it in your phone, in your pocket, all the time. But then how many of us never quite get to that last and final step of reading and meditating on it regularly? all the days of our lives. No, Moses doesn't give like a clear plan here for how much the king should read or in what time frame. I, I don't imagine he's beating himself up for failing to meet his Pentateuch through the year Bible reading plan, right? The goal is depth, consistency, not a specific quantity of reading. So, Yes, there's a value to reading larger chunks of Scripture, but, but sitting and soaking in one parable, one psalm, one small section of the Bible can bear significantly more fruit in our lives than just racing through a set plan, checking off the pastures as we go. And Moses, actually here in the text, gives three clear blessings that are going to come from a regular pattern of such meditative uh, reading in God's Word. First, he says, reading God's Word will help the king learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and doing them. So you can imagine how easily the law might have been reduced So, just one more prized possession among many in the king's vast palace, right? Some ornate fancy roll, I mean, scroll rolled up, revered as a holy object, something special, reserved for the king, but rarely read or applied. But Moses, he pushes so much deeper. He's like, that shouldn't be the case. Possessing it is good, Uh, uh, reading it even better, but the goal is always meant to be putting it into practice. right? Keeping the law and doing it, Moses says. Applying God's word to the real stuff of daily life. Letting God's word shape and form the king's heart to conform him to God's will. We hear uh, the same command echoed by Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the wise man is, is the one who hears the words and does them. That's what it means to build your house on the rock, to hear God's words and to do them. Echoing what Moses says the king should be doing here. So think about all the notes you furiously scribble down here on Sunday mornings. What happens to all that conviction after the service is over and you go home and get caught up in all the other stuff of your life? Or think about all the learnings that come as you study God's Word during the week. Your private devotional time is rich and rewarding and and convicting and encouraging. But then you open up your email and you go to school, you go to a sports game. Where does all that conviction and learning and growth go? Because meditation on God's Word, according to God's Word here, is meant to transform us. So what changes are you seeing in your life as you read God's Word this year? A second blessing that comes from meditating on God's Word is given in uh, verse 20. Moses says that his heart, the king's heart, may not be lifted up above his brother's. I think it's safe to say that if you're the king, it's going to be pretty hard not to feel Just a little bit different and special than everyone else, right? I mean, you've got a crown, a throne, a palace. You've got guards protecting you. You've got servants serving you. You've got people clamoring for your attention and your opinions and your advice and your guidance all the time. All the other kings of other nations, they don't want to talk with the people or your advisors. They want to talk with you because you're the king. You're the head. You're the leader, So even if somehow you resist the temptations we talked about earlier for amassing military and accumulating wives and and, uh, having this vast wealth, there are still so many pitfalls associated with this position. First of all, pride. And the solution, according to Moses right here, is regular study and meditation on God's Word. And what worked for kings works for you and for me also, young or old, rich or poor. It doesn't matter what status you have in the kingdom of God. It works the same way. First and foremost, just a simple act of choosing to give up certain part of your day to study God's Word is itself an act of humility and an act of resistance to that pride that bubbles up in us all the time. So in the mornings, when, when you feel tempted to, 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 to pick up your phone, to scroll through Instagram, to read email, to, to, to read the news, whatever it is, when, when you feel that temptation and you say, No, I'm going to stop that, and I'm actually going to pick up God's Word here. Just that act in itself is a concrete step of faith and trust in God, and a way of putting a stake in the ground to say, I'm going to resist that pride and exercise some humility and submission to what I know God wants me to do, even if I don't feel like it, even before I actually get into the nuts and bolts of God's word. Saying, not my will in this moment, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. But there's a third blessing Moses presents for those who will meditate on God's Word. So look at verse 20 again. He says, So that he, the king, may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. In other words, God protects and guards us through His Word. Think about a parent, right, teaching a kid to ride their bike with their their hands on on the back of the, the, the seat, guiding them, keeping their child from falling over to the right or to the left. God's Word is designed to work like that in our lives, directing everything from how we spend our money and use our time to how we relate to and serve others. That is, if we take the time to read and study and apply it in our lives. So i got to ask, what is your plan for digging into and meditating on God's Word this year? Maybe it's not writing it all out by hand, but what is your plan for submitting to God and taking time each day to let His Word transform you? Well, all of this leads us ultimately to our third major way that we can display our trust in God, and that's actually by supporting each other in community. Now back in our text in chapter 18, having discussed kings, Moses now shifts gears to speak briefly about the Levites. And At first glance, you may be thinking, whoa, okay, what is going on? How does All this stuff about priests and Levites and providing for them have anything to do with kings and the instructions for the leaders of the country. But I think you'll find that by the end here, there is, in fact, a common thread running through it all. So look at verses 1 and 2. It says in verse 1 of chapter 18, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So unlike the other tribes of Israel, the Levites were not assigned any territory in the promised land. Now it didn't mean that they were homeless. We read in Numbers 35 that the original plan was for each of the twelve tribes to set aside four cities where the Levites could live. So forty-eight cities as a whole spread throughout the, the land where the Levites could live. This weren't cities that they owned, but places where they could live. And in addition to that, they were given pasture land for their flocks and herds around those cities. Moreover, um, so think about it. The, uh, the people of Judah initially, at least, lived just in the land of Judah, at least in Syria, initially. But the Levites were spread all over the land. And in this way, they represented the presence of God all among his people, wherever they happened to be. But this arrangement also meant that the Levites were asked to enti- rely entirely on God for everything that they needed. The Lord is their inheritance, as Moses says in verse 2, which sounds very holy, right? very pious, very religious. Oh, I'm just trusting in the Lord for all of this stuff. But what did that mean for their day-to-day life? Like how concretely are they actually going to get food if they don't have any land of their own, and ultimately it meant that the Levites relied on the gifts and offerings brought by the people. So, the Israelites were supposed to care for and support each other. So, for example, uh, you want to bring a peace offering to the place of worship and you, the Levites there would help you prepare and offer this peace offering, and the fat would all be burned up as part of the sacrifice. But then the meat that was left over would be given to the Levites for them to eat as they chose. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 7. This is true of many of the various sacrifices that the people were asked to bring every year. And this then was how the Levites would live and provide for their own families and survive in the land. And so we see in verses uh, 3 through 5, God would provide, not in the way he did during the desert with manna appearing uh, supernaturally on the ground every morning, but through the offerings and the gifts of the people, right? Meat and grain and, and olive oil and even wool for clothes. Meanwhile, the Levites would serve the people by representing them before God, helping them perform their sacrifices, right? working through issues of being clean and unclean, teaching the people about the law, generally guiding and directing the people towards right worship of God. And so in this way, God provides a system designed to tie all the people of God together. So, A repeated refrain in Deuteronomy is that obedience to the law will bring blessing in the land. But how would the people know and apply the law? Well, through the teaching and ministry of the Levites. But how would the Levites be provided for in that case? Well, through the offerings and the sacrifices of the people. But how would the people have enough to bring all these extra offerings and sacrifices? Well, by obeying the law and receiving God's blessing as a result. And how would they obey the law? By uh, the ministry and the teaching of the Levites. And offering right worship and on and on and on. This cycle going around. The people of God supporting and blessing and encouraging each other. So if everyone loved God and they followed his commands... All would be well in the land. The system would work as planned, and even the Levites who had no land of their own would be provided for, and God would provide blessings for his people and on. But if the Levites failed in their duties, then the people would drift away from God. And if the people drifted away from God, then the blessings of God would dry up also. And if the blessings started to dry up, then there'd be less food to go around. And you can see how there would be this downward cycle that would lead people then into idolatry and to worship of foreign gods. Exactly what we see in the book of Judges. Now, our context today is completely different, right? We don't have priests or Levites or a temple. You don't bring goats and and grain sacrifices to church every week. But Christian community is still meant to function in a similar way. So look what happens when the church is born um, in Acts 2, right? The people have everything in common, with each other, sharing together, supporting each other, eating together, praising God and worshiping together. There's this deep sense of connectedness that I think captures so much of the intention behind the command to provide for the Levites. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in and work and worship together in this connected community this goes beyond just providing for material needs. We've talked about that in previous weeks. This goes deeper than that to our personal lives as well. Because in such a tight-knit community, your personal devotional practices, both good and bad, can over time have a profound impact on everyone else, both for good or for bad. That's what we see in the history of the people of Israel, right? This downward spiral, the slow erosion of faith that impacts and spins out and eventually consumes the entire nation. Conversely, what we have been blessed with in our community Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ in our midst is an opportunity to fellowship together, to partake of of the same bread and the same cup, and to draw each other deeper and deeper into faith in Christ and to receive God's blessings as a result. But look, wrapping uh, all of these pieces together... Trusting God has never been easy or intuitive for anyone, right? You don't just fall into the trust of the Lord. It requires concrete actions that reflect specific choices that we're going to make each and every day. How we will view our relationship to God and the world around us. How we will use our time and our money. How we will live in community and with each other. It takes time and effort and commitment and perseverance to keep pressing on even when we fall short. And so I'm so thankful to God that we are not in this alone because unlike the ancient Israelites, God's presence is not limited to a specific place or mediated through a specific group of people. His presence is now with us always, right? Through the Holy Spirit who is alive within us. And we can therefore cling tightly to his promise that, that this work that he started in our lives, he's going to carry through to completion. And My prayer is that that same Spirit would guide us and bless us and strengthen us all as we seek to trust him more this year. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your Spirit who enables us to live and do and think and be the people that we could not be without your help. And Lord, as we look ahead to this year, we pray that you would guide us as we seek to trust you more.